do, y'all? I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Hey, it's Scott Lips, and welcome back, my friends, to another exciting episode of Spin Magazine's Lip Service. How is your summer going? It's hard to imagine. It's just about over. Actually, by the time you're listening to this, I think it is over. Anyway, my next guest is the iconic lead singer of one of the world's best rock bands, Ian Asbury the Cult. He's a friend and a very polarizing individual. We always tend to dig a little deep when we spend some time together, so I'm excited to chop it up with him. The Cult is currently on tour, releasing new music. Their record, Under the Midnight Sun, is coming out in October. Give Me Mercy just came out, and A Cut Inside comes out in September, too. So the band is back better than ever. I saw them play at Pier 17 in New York City. I'm super pumped to go see them, too, at the Greek the first week in October in L.A. They're on tour, and it's great to see them, as always. I'm excited to chop it up with Ian Asbury of The Cult. You're listening to Lips L.A. with Scott Lips. Our show today is brought to you by the fine folks at Thursday's Boot Company. You guys have seen me rocking these boots in every other picture I have on Instagram. I'm always repping them. Thursday's Boots is a bootstrap startup that makes the best handcrafted boots and sells them direct to consumer at some of the lowest markups in the footwear industry. Thursday's Boots tagline is highest quality, honest prices because they use some of the best materials like full grain leather, supple glove leather lining, and gold standard Goodyear welt construction. Thursday's Boot Company sells their boots at prices starting at just $149 with free shipping and returns. They've been featured in all the best fashion press, from Esquire to GQ to Cosmo and Vogue. More importantly, they've gotten over 20,000 five-star reviews from real customers. Thursday's boots are perfect for people who understand quality and don't want to pay a high retail markup for great-looking pair of boots that are built to last. So check them out at Thursday's Boots on Instagram. My favorite shoes, my favorite boots. You always see me repping them. You'll love it. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Welcome, my friend. Great to see you in Astbury, my good friend from the cult. How are you, my brother? My good friend, Scott Lips. It's great to see you. We did this like four years ago, and it's interesting. I mean, I've grown so much. Hopefully, I've gotten a lot better. It was great to... I actually re-listened to it, because I didn't want to go through the same things again. Right. But uh, it was great. It's great to see you. And always, we were in New York the other day, and it was great to see you and spend some time with you. So I love having conversations with you, and I'm always excited to talk to you, because cool. you dig deep. Right. And, and uh, lots to, <laughs> lots to talk about the new record, the new singles, the mm-hmm. show coming up, the Greek, the tour. You're just decompressing from the tour. Right. How's, yeah. how's the tour been going, by the way? The tour was brutal. Yeah. <laughs> um, after not being on the road for two plus years, getting used to being in front of a crowd again, traveling, airports, people. Yeah. Uh, there was it took a minute to mm. get set back in. But um. Once we got back to the shows, then it was the audiences. You could tell a lot of places have been, everywhere's been hit by pandemic. Of course. So you can just tell the general frequency of an audience. Also, I think the first show was in Florida, which the has to be in Florida was, interesting, which right? Which was a little bit, you know, you're going straight into the, out of the frying pan into the fire. Yeah, the heart of the belly of the beast or something. But, I, you know, we tend to, when we go through places like Florida and Texas, we tend to play to the more purple or, you know, we're yeah. not, when we don't go right of center, we're pretty much, uh, our audience is really mixed. It's really diverse. 
Does the set change a lot depending on which state you're playing in? Do you play like the heavier stuff in Florida and Texas or not, not really? particularly. No. It's a blend. Usually we come up with a blend that reflects where we're at. You know, we have a new record coming out, so we tailor the set where even older songs fit in with a newer narrative. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, the, the band is back and better than ever. Was, I saw you guys in New York, as I said, at Pier 17. It was amazing. Dope. Did you Thank like you. the show? I know we were talking about the view of Brooklyn and getting, and then they somehow like blocked the view oh. of Brooklyn or something, right? For Unfortunately, you? our lighting designer, um, RLD, I'm not going to mention his name because I'd be embarrassed, but um, took the ch decision to put up... Um, one of the whole things of playing at Pier 17 is you have this incredible view of the Brooklyn Bridge, right? Yeah. So everybody plays there, has this iconic view, and people around the world go, I wish I was there. It's the Brooklyn Bridge. It's New York. It says, screams New York. Yeah. So here we are, and uh, he decided to put up a, um, it's like a, a diffusing screen, and the idea of that was it would keep the haze in. There was no hate. There was, <laughs> there was a breeze blowing anyway, so the whole view of the we could, have played, we could have been playing anywhere yeah really. yeah so i didn't see that because i was standing there i was actually with frank from guns and roses we were watching the yeah, show yeah and i didn't see that at all was where was that that was behind like yeah it was behind the stage so okay. without that there you would have seen brooklyn bridge right uh, you know but then again maybe that's distracting yeah in some way so perhaps it you know could be a good thing could be a bad thing but um and i feel like they have like volume you can't go over a certain volume when you play that venue too yeah. right because there's sort of noise oranges i think that that's occurs in a lot of urban areas yeah we're playing like in the city outdoors mm. they have uh, limitations on decibels but i think we're still pretty crank it definitely it was a great great show i want to get into so much like i said the new record the tour yeah. and obviously the greek which we just spoke about a few times right, right. about jonesy's show and the uh, greek. <laughs> uh, but tell me a little bit because we did talk about it a little bit but early on just if we take it back a bit you know the show is a little bit about like this is your life into where we're at today so mm -hmm. you grew up in Merseyside, not far from liverpool i believe right merseyside 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 with me merseyside merseyside <laughs> it's the river mersey which goes between Liverpool and Birkenhead. Okay. It's pretty famous. And you met Billy at some point because you guys are like mates north of England. Um, it was a lot more complicated, a lot, of, lot more traveling than that. I was emigrated to Canada when I was 11 and I came back when I was 16. So I spent five years in Canada and then came back and then punk kid in the scene eventually evolved into, you know, hanging out with bands and then being a homeless kid, following Crass, um, an arco punk band that I don't know if a lot of your listeners know Crass at all, but I followed Crass for quite a while and uh, ended up in London on the streets. And while I've been traveling with Crass, I'd uh, met some punk kids in Bradford, which is in the north of England. It's, it's kind of south of Leeds. It's in the north of England. And at that point, I had nowhere to live. I was literally on the streets. So I remember one, one of the kids had offered me a place in a house he was living in. He said, we've got a room here if you want to come and stay here. And I was thinking, why would I want to go to Bradford? I mean, I'm homeless, but yeah. I want to be in London, really. But London was hard, especially on the streets. So I ended up taking, up taking him up on his offer. And with what little money I had, in fact, I was, remember being outside. I went back to Liverpool. I remember being outside of Lime Street Station, um, which is a big train station in Liverpool. And uh, I was sitting there and I had a pound in my pocket. But, um, that's all you had to your name at that point. That's all I had was one pound. Wow. And, but that was my ticket. Now, I was either going to go to see Adam and the Ants in Manchester. Now, with two pounds, I could get to Leeds and Bradford. And this woman came by, and I was really distressed, probably crying, you know, just really frustrated and 
not knowing what to do with myself. And she said, are you okay? And I was like, no, I'm not. I'm trying to get to Bradford. I've got either got, I, I told her the story, you know, I could either go to Bradford with a room or I could follow, keep following bands on the road, which <laughs> right. is well, you get a lot of homeless <laughs> kids were following bands. So um, she gave me five pounds. And that, like was not, that was like $20 back then or oh, something. Yeah. yeah. Way more than that. Yeah. Maybe 30, 30 40 yeah. bill. There, yeah. was a, there was a lot of money. Yeah. And um, she gave me five pounds and I was shocked and obviously very grateful. So I took the uh, the bus and I eventually went to Bradford and ended up in Bradford and stayed in a house and there was a band rehearsing there. They were called Violation, punk band. And they just lost the singer and they asked me if I was interested in joining the band, Southern Death Cult. And uh, the band is called Violation at the time. So... Um, I said, okay, cool. They, they were rehearsing in the basement of the house at the time. There's a PA there. So I'm by a band called New Model Army, pretty well-known band at the time. Mm. And uh, they said, what do, you, what do you know? And Sex Pistols. Everybody knew Sex Pistols. <laughs> so I don't know what we did. Holidays in the Sun, Bodies, Anarchy, God Save the Queen, whatever. And they said, great. Do you want to be in the band? And I was like, what? They said, well, you, could, you can do this. And I was, really? So they were an existing band. So I joined as a singer and and then we evolved, it became Sudden Death Cult, and then Sudden Death Cult, after our fifth show, we only had six songs, we toured, and we ended up opening for Theatre of Hate in 1982, which is where I met Billy. Mm. He was the rhythm guitar player in Theatre of Hate. And you guys formed this lifelong bond, 40 years, nearly 40 yeah. years later, you're still, you have an amazing chemistry with Billy. Yes. And you've done, a, you've obviously, you've done a solo record, you have the Holy Barbarians, Uncle, mm -hmm. Boris, a lot of other projects, but mm -hmm. something always brings you back yeah. to working with Billy, and you make incredible music together. Mm -hmm. So um, it's interesting. So when you guys formed at that point, I mean, do you have fond memories of back in the day? Because I know fond memories. Yeah, fond memories of meeting Billy and just <laughs> you know, like what it was like I in the remember, early days. I remember Billy seemed to be a, more, a little bit sharper than the other guys that he was around. He always had a. He was cheeky. He knew what was going on around him. He was very, very aware of the environment it was in. And we were green. I mean, we were brand new. We didn't know the ropes of being on the road and being around bands and a lot of different pressures coming at you. And he was pretty experienced. So he used to hang out with us because we were from, you know, obviously from the north of Britain. So was he. But the other guys in Theatre of Fate were from the south of Britain. So there was even that cultural divide. Hmm. So, um, yeah, I just remember hanging out with Billy... Uh, you know, hanging out with Stan Stam as the bass player and just kind of formed a, a friendship, really. And then um, later in the, we went through that tour and then we went straight into a Bauhaus tour. We went for Bauhaus. Uh, we, I think we went for The Clash first. Anyway, we played with The Clash. We played with, we did a whole tour with Bauhaus. Um, and the, the band exploded. I mean, Southern Death Cult was, was going to be a, an incredibly big band. But we'd already started, there was already four different directions in the band yeah it's four alpha guys all wanting to go in different directions so being kids you're you're fighting for that uh apex yeah predator spot <laughs> breeding rights i don't know um what were the clash shows by like by the way we played one show with them at stoke okay. uh hanley victoria hall on the combat rock tour mm. amazing show i assume right it was staggering yeah because we were actually I mean, I'd seen The Clash before and uh, actually got backstage with The Clash. We were hanging outside, and Cosmo Vinyl, who was a tour manager, this was in Glasgow, yeah. said, you kids, come on inside. It's raining outside. He brought us in. He said, right, sit here. Brought some beers, and we hung out. 
And then the band came out and introduced themselves and said hi and hung out. And the Clash were very like that. They yeah. were very, and that really struck me. That stayed with me. Were they like a working people's band? I mean, they really yeah. were, you know. They really with identified the with their audience. They were part of the audience, and uh, especially Stromer. But they were all very cool. And um, I remember sitting next to Paul Simon and uh, I think he might have been smoking a jazz cigarette. <laughs> Would you like a hit on this? And I was like, oh. I didn't even know what it was. I mean, it was just... I was a kid. Yeah. I was, I, was, I was a kid. It's amazing how life comes full circle because you went on to even produce Steve Jones' solo record at some yeah, point. co-produced. Yeah, after yeah. like playing you know, some covers of Sex Pistols early on, right? And now yeah. you have this great friendship with Jonesy. We were just talking yeah. about it a minute ago. Yeah, Steve's very important. Yeah, he's a I great mean, guy. Absolutely. Definitely. And so such an incredible career. I, you know, we spoke a little bit last time about some of the records, Love and Electric, one of my favorite records ever. Uh, and it's interesting, I was listening today to the early sessions of Electric mm. and, and the first demos that you were doing. You mm. did the record twice. Yes. Um, so, and I never heard the first record. It was, so, it was It's interesting. It's like almost like overproduced, considering that it, you, know, you met Rick Rubin, and I love that story, how I think you even maybe like went to his dorm room, possibly, and maybe knocked on his door or something. Or no, I know you heard Cookie was, Puss early on. Yeah, but. I heard Cookie Puss early on. And um, I was really, a DJ in Toronto was playing that like late 85. And his name was Chris Shepard, and he was playing in a club. And it just, as soon as I heard it, I was like, what's this? What is this? I went to DJ and I said, what is this music? It's incredible. He said, it's Beastie Boys, Cookie Puss. And I was, that was it. I just went, I'm a, quite obsessive. So <laughs> I had to know everything about it. I mean, I knew a little bit about what was happening with, um, you know, the hip-hop scene in New York because it was kind of documented. Um, and we were going to New York. We first went to New York in 84, played Danceteria. So we're on the street in 84 in New York, and you definitely got the feel for it, Yeah. Um, what was happening musically. And um, I've always been interested in music outside of rock music. I always have. It's just I grew up with Bowie. I mean, yeah. come on. So... Um, that was that, and then eventually we worked out with Rick Rubin. But at that time, we'd already released the Love album, and we decided because that went so well, we were going to go back in with the same producer and make the next record, which wasn't even called Electric. I don't even know what it was called, because the label put us in the studio. Somebody put us in. We didn't. I don't remember us. <laughs> which was Richard Branson's country house in Oxfordshire. All right. Which was goes back to the 14th century or something. You must have had a ball out there in the country. So it was I a guess. stately, yeah. Yeah. Just outside of Oxford, the stately home with a swimming pool and grounds. Now, we're, I mean, I grew up in kind of suburban areas in Canada and outside of Glasgow, and I, you know, went through forests when I was a kid, and, but we're really city kids. And then you, when you put young musicians in a, in a country home like that with a wine cellar, and there were certain um, psychoactive substances growing. <laughs> I was uh, going to say you're foraging for mushrooms. I was out foraging. There the <laughs> oh, I was absolutely foraging. Um, and uh, you, you've dabbled in psychedelia a little yeah, bit in psychedelics, of right? Yeah. yeah, I'm an enthusiast. Yeah, I, I've, I believe that that's the. Uh, it's definitely. Um, it's a big subject. Yeah, it's like funny because I never tried mushrooms up until recently. I, I never mm, got into drugs. Okay. And uh, in the last year, I think I've done mushrooms five times, including about a day ago. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting. Fantastic. I mean, I, no one, I don't think anyone ever overdosed on mushrooms. So I feel like it's a safe... Not to my knowledge. Yeah, and it's a safe like entry point into psychedelics. Mm. And I feel it just makes me smile and laugh. So, But mm. early on when you, were, when you had experimented years ago, this was not... This was a, a taboo subject, right? Well, not really. No? Not really. In 
counterculture and outsider culture, uh, it was known as the medicine. I mean, psilocybin's been growing on the planet for millennia. It's been there and it's been integrated into, you know, um, indigenous and even when we were tribal peoples running around, we were ingesting psychedelics. In fact, a lot of high civilizations were using psychedelics for, uh, you know, hunters, hunter-gatherers were using psychedelics so they could see and hear and, uh, and heighten their senses. So this is, we've had a relationship with psychedelics since we crawled out of the forest, uh, the primordial swamp. But now they're packaged in like, they look like gummy bears and it's yeah, sort of a that's commercialization. The commercial market, yeah. But there is a, there is, that's one thing, you know, using it recreationally. And, um, but then there's the other part of it. If you have some sort of psycho spiritual, uh, desire to explore deeper and further, mm. especially if you're around somebody who has some skills, training, awareness, expanded consciousness, or is in touch with their expanded consciousness. So, I mean, really, it just was a natural thing to do. So you're out there, you're doing the, I think that it was called the manor sessions. It was called the manor. And the place was called The Manor. The Manor, right. And, um, and you're foraging. You're uh, doing the record. I was foraging, <laughs> and uh, I was definitely foraging in the wine cellar, that's for sure. Because they locked it, but we worked out how to get it open. That took about five minutes. I'm sure Richard Branson <laughs> had an amazing wine cellar, right? He had a massive wine cellar. <laughs> yeah. And there was, I mean, you didn't need anything. Yeah. It was all there. And we were in this country house. It's beautifully catered. It was a beautiful home. But, of course, we're, you know, young kids. And... Uh, not much respect for the, for the <laughs> it was just really the studio was the most important thing and um i basically believed there a day shift and then i come in in the early evening it I'd sometimes take me three hours to get in the studio i'd be doing whatever i was doing recreating a scene from apocalypse now <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a field somewhere fully camoed up um you love camo so that makes sense I love camo. Yeah. i've been a camo obsessive since i was a kid so, yeah uh, yeah you know um so you make the record, and the record ends up being a lot different than the one you eventually went on to yeah, make. Yeah, I just felt that the, actually when I was listening to it when we were doing it, I just kept felt it was getting really dense and swampy, and there was a lot of overdubs, and that was really attributed to the fact that the songs were not fully formed, hmm. and also we didn't want to repeat ourselves with love, so we were looking for something, but we didn't quite know what, and you know I immediately was saying Rick Rubin. This sound, strip everything back. So the initial conversation with Rick, we met him, and I'm pretty sure we met him in his dorm room. You'd have to ask Rick. I'm pretty sure it was, he's still in his dorm room. Now, how do you track him down to his dorm room? Do you send, I mean, there was no email then. So, I don't know. I mean, you That's got to him. That's a very good question. You got to him some way, I guess. I don't know, because you couldn't get on a cell phone. You couldn't Google anybody. Right. So you didn't, how'd you get his address? I mean, that's. Telexes or whatever, anyway, whatever the technology was. But needless to say, we got hold of Rick, and we sat with him. I remember him playing a video of Blue Cheer, and he said uh, he made some derogatory remarks about, you know, British post-wave, post-punk music. Um, and he said, well, you want to make music like this? And it was the Blue, Blue Cheer doing Summertime Blues, and it was kind of like this, you know, talking about the MC5 and the Stooges, and both Billy and I were sitting there going, Really? <laughs> we could do this because we're uh, massive fans yeah. of, of all those bands. So, Obviously, there was the ACDC influence too, right? Not as much for me personally. Right. But although I loved Bon Scott period. Yeah. Um, but I didn't really go in that way. I went a bit more Brian Jones. Mm. I was a bit more, you know, I was listening to things like uh, everything from Joy Division to Cannes to, to, to uh, Public Image. Yeah. To, I was very much at the Banshees. I was very interested in that music. But I also loved 
I was beginning to listen to the music we weren't supposed to listen to as punks, which was Led Zeppelin, yeah. The Doors. Well, The Doors were actually okay, I think, because I was in Liverpool in 1980, and everybody listened to The Doors. Yeah, yeah. Everyth everything sounded like The Doors. Right. Everybody, I mean, even Ian Curtis, you know, was mimicking, to a degree, uh, Iggy Pop, and who was mimicking Jim Morrison, who yeah. was mimicking Frank Sinatra. And Elvis Presley. So <laughs> it was a lineage. I mean, it was just something that was passed on, the croon, baritone croon. Um, so I was listening to all this different kind of music, and it was almost a taboo to come out and say, are you coming out as a fan of Led Zeppelin? Yeah. In the early 80s, it was, you know, you were going to get some feedback. And initially, the media couldn't handle it. The, nobody could handle it. And I came out with a Zeppelin T-shirt on, and everyone was like, what? <laughs> I said, well, you can like public image and Led Zeppelin. Yeah. It's, it's music. Well, yeah. you've never been afraid of defying genres and evolving as a band. I mean, you've no. evolved on almost every single record, which is, which is something I want to get into. Thank but you. Yeah, of course. But, but so you meet Rick and you do the record, and obviously it's, it's a lot punchier, stripped down, yeah. not was, as texturized. Right. It was supposed to be a remix. The, the whole plan was, and again, this is where, what's great about there was no technology. So we were left with Rick for a couple of weeks, maybe even like six weeks, to remix the album. And Rick said, the caveat is I have to re-record two tracks. So I'm like, okay, great. So as soon as we got the management and the A&R and everything had gone, we're at Electric Lady Studios on 8th Street, right? Great studio. You, you know the location. Yeah, of course. Jimi Hendrix's studio. Yeah. And uh, we're there with Rick, and pretty much straight away, Rick's like, let's try this one. I said, but we're not supposed to be doing that. And he goes, well, let's just give it a go. We were like, okay, cool. So the next thing we know, we were recording the entire album. And the management came over and we said, sit down. We're re-recording the album. And they said, what? They were freaking out. I said, whoa, 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 wait. Let, let, let us play it for you. Right? So we played it for them and they were like, wow, this is, this is powerful. It's dope. So they said, finish it. And the label were really cool and supportive. Martin Mills was very cool. We just spent a fortune in a very expensive house <laughs> in the countryside. <clears throat> Doing and the record twice. I mean, who does that? Yeah. We did it. <laughs> I didn't get any royalties until about five years ago. <laughs> that's that's back when they had budgets, too, for records, right? It's like, yeah, there was a lot, but yeah. the money was, you know, but there was certain formats. There was only certain formats yeah. you didn't have. I mean, even MTV was in its early stages, so you weren't spending excessive amounts of money for videos. At that point, the late 80s, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions, if you're a Michael Jackson or a GNR or whatever. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, we just responded at times we lived in and, you know, we just went with it. But we were much more interested in <clears throat> performing, making music. Yeah. That was it. And the lifestyle kind of was around us. I was always very much more interested in the music part of it. Because you never were really a part of that, part of you know, the, the late 80s <laughs> part of all those bands. You always did your own thing. You, you came from, as you mentioned, the goth punk scene. So all those yeah. bands that were getting really popular during that time period, you had the Motley Crues and, and obviously mm. Guns at 80, 88, 89. You were never, you know, you did your own thing. You mm. always had your own identity and a very strong identity. Um, and at a certain point, we talked about this last time, but you almost got cast as Morrison in the Doors movie. Oh, just a quick note about the GNR thing. Yeah. Um, their first American tour was opening for the cult. Oh, right, right. That's and right. I saw them at the Marquee in London in March of 87. I said to our managers, we've got to play with these guys. And I've been reading about them in Sounds magazine. I read this article about them. I thought, these guys sound incredible. Yeah. They sound like us. 
they're, just, they're, they're talking about the same things. They're talking about punk rock and talking about Led Zeppelin and talking about rock and roll and they're talking about this and this. And I thought, wow, well, they're really erudite. They look really cool. And I think I had... Uh, no, I didn't have Uzi Suicide at that time, but I went to the show. The marquee it was only about three, 400 people. And I was just... They were staggering. Oh, they were incredible in 88. They were st- 87. 87, yeah. They were staggering. Yeah. Staggering. I- and then we obviously toured with them and... Um, you know, they opened for the band and, and we got along very, we got along really, really well and we're very close. So we have that bond with those guys and we've had that since, because we're all kids together. Yeah. But obviously their career went off in a meteoric, you know, they just blasted off. Yeah, were you into bands like Hanoi at that point? Because obviously they, they took a lot from Hanoi back then too, I Yeah, think. I think a lot of bands took from Hanoi. Yeah. I mean, um, Hanoi Rocks, but then they took from New York Dolls. Of course. Who took yeah, from uh, David Bowie, who took from, you know, um, Cabaret. Yeah, With yeah. Bob Fosse and, um, you know, written by Ian Isherwood. It was called I Am A Camera. Yeah. It's a, it's a long tradition of men wearing dresses or makeup. I mean, men have been doing that, feminizing themselves for for millennia yeah. you know they've been wearing makeup and dresses for it's not a new thing yeah definitely not but just in entertainment dudes wore dude clothes and the women wore you know dresses and that's actually not what was going on in the 60s and the 70s yeah in fact Coco Chanel was wearing suits in the what in the 1930s 1920s true so there's a whole lineage that goes with it and it is relevant to a degree yeah because that's how we get to where we are now exactly and everyone's coming out dripped with X, Y, and Z, you know, it's drip, I'm Balenciaga, I'm Gucci, whatever, and yeah. you're dripping all your stuff, and it's like, this, yeah, it's a parade. It's yeah. a parade of, uh, you know, he said wearing his Comedy Garçon shirt. Um, <laughs> it's a parade of of, 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 uh, of, of peacocks and um, dandies, yeah. finery. And yeah. you, you actually, I think you met Matt Sorm on that tour, right? Isn't that where you initially no. connected with him, or had you connected with no. him before that? no. Matt was running a rehearsal studio in the Valley. Ah, okay. And we'd lost our drummer. Uh, let's see, we made... After the Electric Tour, which was quite brutal. It was pretty brutal, Scott, I have to tell you. We probably did about 180 shows that year. Wow. And we were, we basically went from a sold-out British tour into a tour with Billy Idol, who was you know huge at that time. Yeah. Then we went... I think we had about two weeks off, which was basically going out in London and getting drunk. And then... Um, we, we start with GNR, and then we came out of that, and we played our own shows. And so by the, the end of the year, we were burnt. Yeah, yeah. And the drummer was burnt, and certain lifestyle choices had crept in. So he went, we got rid of him, and then we started you know, talking about the next record, Bob Rock. We, we actually came to L.A. in early 88 for a break. It was supposed to be a two-week holiday, ended up staying for seven or eight months, and just fell in love with Los Angeles and um, the mm-hmm. freedom here. And uh, But Matt, at that point, was still working in a... I think he was playing with some bands, but he had a rehearsal studio in the Valley. And we actually made a record with a guy called Mickey Curry on drums. Sure. And, and, um, and obviously Bob Rock producing. We did that in Vancouver. And then when we came back, we had to find our live drummer. And um, we auditioned Matt. And we liked him. We loved his energy. And he joined the band. So Matt played with us on the Sonic Temple tour. He didn't record on a record. And then after that period was finished, the Sonic Temple period, actually my father passed away on that tour. Mm. So in early 90, my father passed away. And, you know, we'd done a whole year of touring with Sonic Temple as well. Um, so at that point, it was, it was pretty devastating. It was very difficult. Plus, I was pretty exhausted. Yeah. I've been doing it since I was 19. I needed a break. I was worn. I was, I was spent just from touring and, you know, all the shenanigans and 
Um, it takes its toll. It's funny. People don't always know what goes on on the road. They just see the glamorous one hour on stage, but they yeah. don't know the other 23 hours that are going on behind the scenes. That's what Charlie Watts said, you know. Yes, yeah, I was going to tell you that. I was yeah. just watching that documentary. Yeah. and he would waiting around for 30, 40 years. Exactly. And he would, he would sketch, like, his hotel rooms and just... You know, literally, he would spend all day in his room. He's like, I don't like when maids come in the room because they touch my stuff. He was very OCD, which I didn't know. A lot um, bizarre. But he was like, <laughs> incre- like he would like they'd introduce him on stage, and he'd pick up like the dust near his feet when he would come out because he yeah. didn't. It's crazy. But he, but I was watching that, thinking about that because he would literally spend all day just sketching his room because mm-hmm. he had all these hours of downtime. Yeah. Um, but yeah, how do you? By the way, I, I, well, I digress because I want to get That's into fine. the doors thing. But yeah. how do you spend your time when you're on the road and you have that downtime? I know you love vinyl, you love sneakers. You love culture, but what yeah, are you doing culture. when when you have your downtime on the road? Usually, try and get out in the community wherever it is. I find a destination, I'll go there, and then I'm in a community. Like for example, in Chicago, I was in Wicker Park, walking around, going in places, talking to people, getting a general read on the place. You know, record shops. I love going to, you know, dig through vinyl bins. And, yeah. Um, are you an Amoeba fan? I haven't been to the new Amoeba, yeah, but I am a fan of Amoeba. Absolutely. We'll go there. It's right next to my house, so okay, we'll great. spend some time there for sure. No, I haven't, been, I haven't been in Amoeba, and plus I've got about 3,000 pieces of vinyl at home. <laughs> I don't know, you need to get rid of them. I already dumped about 3,000 pieces. So, <laughs> Amazing. Um, yeah, I've got to be careful with the vinyl. <laughs> I am a vinyl junkie. It's going to start taking over your whole house. It'll just be vinyl, well, like a hoarder or something. Point. Yeah. I mean, I had to get rid of a load of books as well, all the analog stuff, books and vinyl yeah. and cassettes. I was even getting, got rid of all my VHSs, which I wish I hadn't now because mm. everyone's about VHSs now. We, we spoke about Idols, I think, last mm. time I saw you, and since yeah. then I've seen them like five times. What do you um, think? Amazing band. You were the first one to turn me on to Idols, mm. uh, and, and it's funny because they've really sort of blown up. I saw them play mm. Sunday with Strokes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're great. It's a vibe, you know. It's definitely... Oh, no, they're, they're of their time. They're... They're crushing it yeah. right now. You've always been great at identifying, like, you know, bands before they really make it. And and so that's definitely, I give you credit, because you were definitely the first one to talk to me about them. And since cool. then, I've seen their meteoric rise. Have you seen them play, by the way? I was at the show. Oh, you were at the show Sunday? Yes. The Stroke Show? I didn't yes. see oh, I had no idea. Okay. I was there, but I was there incognito. Okay. Did you see Turnstile, too? I didn't, but I do like Turnstile. Yeah, they're cool. I think Turnstile are excellent. Yeah. But it was just the dynamic of the venue. We actually went to see um, the band that really got us there was Beach House. Oh, right. Okay. But weren't they Saturday night or did I, were they Sunday? They were Sunday night. Sunday night. Okay. Because I only went on Sunday. Okay. I saw The Descendants. It was actually pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but but good, great festival. Getting back to what I was asking before, <laughs> I digress. Um, you almost got cast as Morrison in the Oliver Stone biopic in like 89. Mm-hmm. So talk to me about that because that, that was like a courting process that took years with that band. And then eventually... 12 years. Yeah, you ended up playing with them and we'll talk about that. So That was quite a courtship. Yeah. Tell me about that when you first met Oliver Stone and, how, and what happened back then in 80, what 89. Well, how you met him and what ensued we after that. We had a sandwich that. and a cup of tea. <laughs> uh, you took some psychedelics and it was... Fine. No, it was actually <laughs> Danny Sugarman, who was the Doors manager at the time, who wrote No One Here Gets Out Alive and Wonderland Avenue. Danny's quite well documented. Any Doors fans know Danny. But Danny, at that point, I would think it would have been late 88, when they would start making a film, or they were casting. And he said to, I got a message in our mat from our management saying, Danny Sugarman would like to take you out for lunch. And actually had lunch right next door. Um, from where you're doing your podcast. Oh, cool. Which is a place, it was called Sushiyan Sunset. Oh, yeah, I remember the place. Great place. It was place. a pretty well-known place. Yeah. So I went there, and sushi was still pretty, uh, you know, it wasn't really in my food palette. I mean, I'd had it in New York. Yeah. 
it's pre the mercury poisoning. Uh, oh yeah, information. Totally. I mean, the fish was incredible. Yeah. But um, I love Japanese food. We first went to Japan in '85, so you know. But um, I went there with Danny. We had lunch, and then he said, uh, you know, we talked. We're making a film. He was trying to keep it pretty chill because I think it was under wraps at that point. So making a film about the Doors, about the band. And, um, you know, Oliver Stone's going to be the director and he just done Platoon and I was very aware of who Oliver Stone was. He said, I'm going out to an event tonight. Do you want to come? Do you want to come and meet him? Of course. Absolutely. So Danny picked me up. <clears throat> BMW. Had a few cocktails already. So we had a hairy drive to wherever we were going. I was introduced to Oliver. It was a nightclub. It was heaving spot i can't remember where it was, it was <laughs> hide on sunset or something i strange. don't know where it was um <laughs> but i remember talking to oliver and he was talking about casting for the doors and he said you ever thought of acting and i was said no <laughs> i haven't thought about acting i think i gave him some sort of arrogant young arrogant response like uh yeah someday somebody will make a film about me <laughs> you know that something like that and, uh, also, this is 89. The band was, you was know, on fire. No, 87? No, no, no. This is pre-Sonic Temple Tour. Oh, okay, so, okay. Um, or it might be in the middle of it. You, uh, who knows? I, I can't go back in the time machine. But that was it. Spent a very inebriated night with Oliver Stone. Talked mostly about the American Indian movement and state of indigenous affairs in the United States, which he was very interested in. Mm. And we had a bigger conversation about that. And, of course, we talked about Morrison and the Doors, and it was a great conversation. But at the time, I was very close friends with Michael Hutchins. And I was chatting with him, and he goes, uh, yeah, they asked me as well. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, all right. <laughs> but you were always drawn to the Doors music anyway because of the sort of the yeah. darkness about, you know, that sort of around, surrounding them. It was just the erudition around the Doors. Yeah. You know, yeah. the fact they did read. They were filmmakers. Yeah. They read. They were into um, meditation. They had a sense of um, the world outside of themselves. And, uh, you know, Morrison very well read. Um, they were they were uh, exploring the doors of perception. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you end up you end up doing a bunch, like I think 150 shows with That's them. That's correct. Must have been sort of surreal when you get that gig and you're on yeah. tour with them and you're looking to your right and left. You see Robbie, you see Ray, and it had to be really surreal, I would imagine, right? Um, yeah, that was a little bit much. And you, At and first, it was a bit much. Yeah, it took me a minute to um, pull myself together because I was always tripping, <laughs> watching them play. Yeah, and just forgetting where I was. It was almost as if I was in a dream state. Yeah, and I realized, oh, the words better come out of my head. I better be the one on the mic. And eventually, it was great because there became a chemistry with us, perform- even performing their their material. There was a chemistry with the band. And that became its own entity. Mm. And Ray even said, he said, look, we only did six live shows in Europe. And you did like 150 with we them. We did 150 shows, which is probably as many as they did back in the day. Amazing. So, because um, they, did, they didn't tour the world. They toured mostly North America. They did a couple of gigs in Mexico and six gigs in Europe. And Morrison didn't even make one of those. He was in Amsterdam and he was, you know, people had been giving him stuff all day long, whatever. And uh, he was too out of it to do the show. So Ray sang it. Amazing. And that would happen occasionally. Jim would have a few drinks and Ray would take over the vocals. I imagine it's like an out-of-body experience when, like you said, you look at your left and your right and you're mm. with them and it's sort of like so surreal that it almost is like having an out-of-body experience at that point, right? Yeah. I mean, I can equate it to 
when I was younger, I got hit by a car, I got run over, and everything just went in slow motion. Mm. But you become hyper aware. Yeah. Everything is nuanced. The smell, everything you're seeing, it's all slowed down. And before me, the doors, that kind of level of awareness, that heightened awareness with Manzarek and Krieger, first of all, we knew you couldn't make a mess. But there was no mess because part of the thing was chaos. Yeah. The controlled chaos. They were very good at it. <clears throat> and being on the inside of it, you began to realize that Jim was responding to their musical nuance, especially Ray. Ray would push the music in a certain way. He was a very expressive player. He wasn't playing to script. Yeah. One thing about those guys, they never played to the script. They didn't care about it sounding like the record. There was arrangements, but for the most part, if Ray went off and did a solo or had a different interpretation or decided to do something, the band responded in real time. Well, also in terms of lineage, they came from yeah. a jazz background. Jazz and classical for Ray. Yeah, which I was about <clears throat> freeform in itself. Yeah, but also right? blues. I mean, Ray grew up in the south side of Chicago. Yeah. So they had all of that already uh, in them. And, um, yeah, they, I learned it was like going to university for ha- me. It had to be definitely. incredible. You played Huge. in front of like 60,000 people in Buenos Aires, yeah. too, right? That was insane. Must have been incredible. It was a night of an eclipse, and there was riots, and there was about 80 fires burning out of control. Wow. And a massive riot. Everything that was, wasn't nailed down got thrown on stage. I remember Robbie looking at me, and I just said, just keep playing. <laughs> just keep playing. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't stop playing. Don't stop playing. Just <laughs> yeah. keep playing. Stay on your gig. And I mean, I go over and talk to them during the shows. Yeah. I, I got, we, we, were, we were in very intimate contact. I mean, every night we, we'd have hugs, and we were very close. You know, it's, um, it was profound. It was family. And uh, it was very difficult to leave, but I knew I couldn't stay. I'd overstayed my welcome in some ways. Mm. I mean, at first, first when I went in there, I was terrified of, you know, I was, I really wanted to make sure I was doing it right, whatever that meant, because there's plenty of people telling me how I should do it or not do it. <clears throat> and I just had to find my own space, because at the end of the day, it was me in front of the mic. So <clears throat> with Manzarek, was a really great mentor, especially Ray. He was an incredible mentor. Yeah. Yeah. It worked incredibly well. When you look back and watch videos of that, again, it looks it just really gelled at that point. I think yeah. the more you had played it, you really embodied the whole spirit and essence of what it was. And well, yeah, because the music creates a certain frequency and you respond to it. Yeah. You just naturally respond to it. Um, the rhythms, you know, there's certain things where you respond to it. Yeah. And the music pushes you around, so you've got to move with it. In you know, different music, I mean, a lot of with all respect, hard rock music is pretty much straight ahead. No question. You know, it's... You know, it's pretty linear, and whereas the Doors were playing Bossa Nova, they were playing uh, North African uh, beats and rhythms and Latin beats and rhythms, and they really broke it up, you know, like... There's a swing to it, an incredible yeah, swing, swing to it. Yeah, you know, and you've got to move with that. Yeah. You can't stand there and just go like a unit and be locked up and it was definitely that and the audience was really digging it yeah yeah and you've got the audience as well and the way they're moving and the whole thing is just this amorphous mass you're all together having this incredible cathartic experience <laughs> <gathering>. it's <laughs> profound <laughs> amazing profound yeah it's profound I mean I can't even believe I did it it's 
you know. That's incredible. When, when you think about that time period, you think about obviously your solo record. I even checked out the Holy Barbarians uh, yesterday, which is a great record, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, and all the stuff that you've done, Uncle and Boris. I know Thank it's you. all near and dear to your heart, but, but what are some mm-hmm. of the, your favorite sort of eras of, of making music in that sense? I guess all of it, yeah. to be honest with you. I mean, it's a privilege to be able to do it still, even making this record. Sometimes it can be quite brutal, the creative process. Mm. But now I feel a lot more comfortable with just being what it is. You know, when I was younger, I was aspiring for a certain thing, whereas now a lot of that's within me and I've had those experiences. So it's more from lived experience. And it's about sp- expressing that, I guess. Yeah. So hopefully you've got to get the right environment, the right players, the right contact, the right frequencies. You know, and sometimes that's, hey, check this out, listen to this. Um, sharing ideas and, you know, but that's what keeps it fresh. No question. Well, let's talk about the new record for a moment. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. This record came about and you were, it was right, I think, before the pandemic. You'd started rehearsing for it and tracking for it. And then all of a sudden, you know, we all know what happened in the world. And then you kind of had to record the record remotely. Right. So I think that you were in L.A. and then some of the backing tracks were done Mm -hmm. in London at the time. So talk to me about the process of the new record coming out. And I think also the inspiration, because Brian Jones was a big inspiration for this record for you. Absolutely. So talk to me about a little bit about Mm -hmm. the new record. It's it's a great record, by the way. It's majestic. I think that's the word I would use to describe this record. Majestic. Majestic. It's it's layered. (laughs) It's texturized. It's a a great, great record. Yeah, it, it comes with... A crown and an orb, um, a scepter. <laughs> Lord of the uh, Rings. Lord of the Ring. <laughs> Scott Lips, Lord of the Ring. Um, where'd you start? Uh, we were lucky because we started doing discovery demos. Pretty much you empty your pockets out and you say, what have you got? Check it out. I got this. I got 37 cents. I got 72 cents. What do you got? Throw it on a table. Yeah. And kind of go through it and we listen to stuff. We did that in LA in March 2019. So it was just pre-pandemic lockdown. So we had a nutshell of songs mm. to work on. And then everything went lockdown. And then, you know, LA just went imploded. Because um, you were here during oh that yeah, time. Oh, yeah, I was here yeah. for sure. Yeah. I watched the smoke rise and the gunshots. Yeah, I was yeah. here. Yeah, fireworks every night. I was right by you, so because we used to live yeah. very close to each other, so Pretty I saw lit, that. Yeah, right. It was yeah. lit. Yeah, it was heavy. It was insane. It was heavy and it was dangerous, and um, there was a lot of anxiety around, and uh, a lot of people were feeling it very deeply, and people were getting sick as well. Mm. It was no joke. So uh, that was kind of the backdrop to the writing. A lot of the writing had already occurred. Songs like Vendetta X and Knife Through Butterfly Heart I'd had around for a while, but they weren't really as contextualized as the period made them making the record through the pandemic and especially what was happening in LA. Um, so Billy was stuck in the UK. The producer was in the UK. So they were kind of forced to, if we wanted to go ahead with the record, they put together a session with um, Charlie Jones on bass who played with Golf Rap and Plant and Page, Jimmy Page and Robert Plant. He also played in Robert Plant's solo band for many years so incredibly experienced incredible musician brilliant erudite actually reads books um and the drummer was ian matthews who played with kasabian sure so this great studio band and i was working remotely you know so i come in with that notes and ideas and but the gateway with brian jones was i was listening when I mean, you sort of bring it back to the psychedelic conversation and something was very interesting with brian and that period I mean, they made Satanic Majesty's Request, and 
you know, I think Brian Jones had a sitar in his hand before the Beatles did. Yeah. Um, he was very interested in Moroccan, North Africa, Morocco. He went to Marrakesh. He recorded the master musicians of Jujuko. And that is all transcendental stuff and, and high magic and metaphysics with Burroughs and Geisen and... Yeah. I mean, it's very heady stuff. But Brian Jones was the, you know... Uh, the God Star. I mean, he was the one. He was the lightning rod. He brought it all together, and also the the, androg the androgyny, the way he dressed, quite feminine but very dandyish clothing, and and um, really inquisitive and impish, and you know, an incredible musician. I mean, he gave the band the name. Yeah, a lot of people don't know about him too. It's interesting. Brian was the, he was the the beginning of it all. Yeah, as was Sid Barrett with Pink Floyd. True. So Brian Jones, for me, was always a muse and um, very interested in him. And I keep going back to certain muses. And for me, what I was listening to a lot of at the very beginning of the record was um, some of this music's coming out of North Africa right now, like Mudu Mokhtar, who have uh, an album. Um, it's called Victim Afrique. And this particular sound coming out of North Africa, Mali, Niger, uh very rhythmic, very uh, ritualistic, transcendental. You know, it's it's uh, it has a different feeling than than music around today. Yeah, and this band's exploding as well. <clears throat> so I was really interested. In that I was really interested in North Africa with Brian Jones and Geisen. Very interested in Brian Geisen and Burroughs, of course, and uh, became a muse and can, of course. So I was listening to a lot of that music was coming out of a different space. It wasn't coming out of the commercialized format and what everybody else was doing. This was going into something far more metaphysical. And and that was, I think during the pandemic, I feel I went more inward. Yeah. I went more and just had to surrender. We all had to surrender to it in different ways. But perhaps having some form of Buddhist practice, I was able to access that. And what was coming up was I was going to the books and the music that really spoke to me at a certain frequency. And then that was the gateway. That's what I was trying to put in the room in terms of the rhythm and the space that we're working in. So this record has more of a sense of, uh, of the worldliness and expandedness. and Textures. Yeah, textures. A lot of textures. It's very cinematic. Yeah. Um, but then again, some of the stuff sounds like it just came straight off the street. No question. And you work with Tom Devilson, I think, on the record? Tom Dalgazy. Tom Dalgazy, okay. He did Ghost. He's done the Pixies, I believe, right? Yeah, he was, he was A-B in between the Pixies and the Cult. <clears throat> So he was making the Pixies album and he was making the Cult record pretty much at the same time. But Tom's got incredible provenance. Yeah. Younger producer, up and coming, did Royal Blood. Um, Great band, by the way. Yeah. They, I mean, he made the record that made them yeah. Royal Blood. And, of course, worked bands like Killing Joke, Pixies, Ghost, got Grammy nomination for that. Worked with, uh, I think he's even worked with, um, what's he worked with? Oh, yeah, Susan the Banshees. Mm. He worked on that record at Manta Ray. I believe. Was it hard for you to record the record in that way? Because obviously Zoom yes. is not an organic way to record no, a record. So it's not. So what would, what was the process like for the record? I mean, they would call you and they'd be recording. You'd say you would sort well, of... Well, usually they were sending me files. And I was commenting on the files. You know, what they were sending me over. Like the rushes. Yeah. And I'd say, can you try this, try that? I'd speak to people individually. But really, there's a point when conversations stop. And the room, the organic band in the room is going to respond. So I could only put so much, so much influence and ingredients into it. And Billy obviously has his own vision as well. Of course. So it's a, it's a collaboration. The cult is a collaboration. Not really a band. It's more of a collaboration between the two of us. Yeah. 
and um, both bring different aspects to it. Um, but that's that's how it was. Yeah, it was hard. But in some ways, it made you have to pay more attention because when you're on a call, there's only a certain amount of focus time. Yeah. Before you start drifting off. Was any of it done in real time where you would actually be in the room with them when they were recording? They did the backing tracks without me in the present. And then I got the, those and made notes on them. And then later in the year, uh, Tom Dalgety was able to come over and bring the backing tracks to a studio working at uh, Anti-Machine Machine Studio, a private studio, and um, began to start taking it all apart. You know, like I was taking it to pieces and yeah. rebuilding it because I was looking for a certain adding percussion, pulling things out, and I really got my hands dirty in that. And then song titles, I had about 60 album titles, but things were becoming clearer as we went through the process. And then that was it, and eventually Billy came over and we were doing overdubs together, and we ended up in the room together. So I was doing vocals right up until the final mixes. Wow. Billy was doing overdubs at the final mixes as well. So it was as fresh, as fresh, as fresh, as we could get. And even the name of the record is interesting because it came about about you looking at old footage mm. of, uh, you know, the sun doesn't set in Finland. I believe there yeah, was a the festival there. Yeah. yeah, and talking <laughs> about how the name came about under the midnight sun. Well, that was it. Um, during the pandemic, looking at some archival footage of a concert from 1986 with playing Provinci Rock in Finland. And the first memory is of this stage is, is real flowers. Like the whole front of the stage is real flowers. Perhaps promoters in this country should pay some attention. <laughs> I want to create a nice environment for the people who actually paid a sheer load of money for your festival. Um, and that's what was great about this festival, the sense of community and that the promoters really cared about the audience. Mm. And the audience was very integrated and the bands were all integrated with each other and there's a sense of togetherness and it's really beautiful. But then after the show, walking around 3, 4 in the morning, the sun was still up which is an anomaly in the Northern Hemisphere, the yeah. sun doesn't go below the horizon, it stays in the sky. So it's light at four in the morning. Incredible. And it's just people, you know, making out, drinking wine, hanging out, talking. Nobody's got a cell phone. And you had footage people of this. actually have to talk. <laughs> yeah. No, we didn't have footage of that, but I have the memory of that. Oh, yeah, the memory of it. I have yeah. the memory of walking around. It was just an incredibly halcyon moment and very innocent and pure and earnest. And it just stuck with me. Mm. It was a joyous experience and it just stayed with me and then right in the middle of the pandemic it was a beautiful thing that just came up and I went oh it can be like that yeah yeah. it can really be like that as opposed to you know pop 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 fireworks in the police helicopter and yeah whatever you know somebody crashing a car down the street I mean heavy all of it yeah and perhaps that's where I went to and that just came through so I labeled that experience under the midnight sun and the essence of that experience. And we had a song that was evolving, which had the, I think, working title of Wilderness, which is a title of a poetry book by Jim Morrison and a term that's been used, you know, wildly, widely. Wilderness, the concept of wilderness, what is wilderness? Um, You know, Robert Bly, the poet, said, the trouble started when mankind lost touch with the wild animals. And there's something in that. You feel that one. I feel that one. Mm. It's a tough one. Yeah. So many of us walking around out there that have never had an experience, a wilderness experience, and everything's very cognitive, and we're wrapped up in our, you know, our units. 
Oh, you lived in Tibet. I mean, you've, you've done yeah. some real soul searching. And, and I a tried lot of Tibet. And basically, when I got to Tibet, they said, go home. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's all within you and uh, you got to work it out yourself. Yeah. So that was the big takeaway from Tibet was really you can go wherever you want, but there you are. And yeah. eventually you have to work on your work on your own. Exactly. Stuffs. Yeah. You've done a lot of that over the years. I mean, I've known you for, yes. I think now like 10 years, but just got to know you a lot better the last few years and really yeah. spent some time with you. And it's been incredible getting to know you more and more. It's great to know you. Yeah. Pleasure. Pleasure. But also let's talk about the, the video, by the way, Give Me Mercy. Uh, I think the video just came out not yes. long ago. Came out about six weeks ago, I believe. And tell me the story behind the video. It's a great video. There's almost like characters in it from like anonymous, you know, the mm, internet. The, of course. Uh, yeah. So I, I don't know yeah. where the inspiration came from the video for like that. Like V for Vendetta. Exactly. Exactly. The Mask of Warner V for Vendetta, written by Alan Moore. Yeah. And it's quite an interesting film. Um, dystopian futurism. The video, Give Me Mercy, well, the title came from, uh, it was originally called, it, was the, it had a name Mercy, the track had a name Mercy came up in the chorus give me mercy a new language I'm like that's that's pretty dope keep that yeah and that stuck so we weren't going to call the song mercy because you go google mercy there's about 5,000 songs called mercy (laughs) (laughs) so I thought but I still like the sentiment of mercy I mean even Kanye West had released a song called mercy yeah loosely about the same time so it became give me mercy um but the response to that was a new language, and that was really the onus of, of what I was, I guess, trying to communicate was this idea that we're all talking at cross purposes. There's so much polarization, nobody's really hearing each other. So in many ways, it's 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 asking, pleading for better communication, better intimacy, you know. So that was one of the the ideas behind the lyric, and um, the video is just an amalgamation of things that go on in my head. You know, there's so many influences in there. If I pointed them out, you'd be like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I see that. Oh, Kurosawa, okay. Uh, Tarkovsky, okay. Uh, Alejandro Yolearski, okay, I see it. Okay, oh, Denis Villeneuve's Dune. Yeah, the Bene Jesuits. Oh, right, okay, I'm seeing these things. Uh, but they all relate to certain aspects and experiences. And um, it was made by an Argentinian director named Juan Azule. Uh, and he thinks in the same kind of poly phonic way that my brain works and we were able to put together this dream sequence you know as a Marie Antoinette character who's yeah. actually representative of a Medusa character and there's a lot to it there's layers yeah <clears> I can <throat> see that I was also looking at a lot of Greek mythology <laughs> with this and, 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 and holy sites in, uh, in that area um, Temple of Delphi and you know the ecstatic visions of the priestess of, of the Temple of Delphi and you know the uh psychoactive substances and how they affect creativity and and evolution it was just heady stuff yeah yeah but i wasn't i wasn't lusting or grasping at it i was in really in it i was very coming from a place of you know really uh taking time to to study and contemplate and put it together and that's one of the great things probably the only good thing that happened because of the pandemic was that the songs could evolve organically, naturally, in real time, and we were able to make adjustments and they could be fully realized, which doesn't really happen with a lot of records because you've got three months, you hit it, and then it's off it goes, it's mastered, 
you can't touch it. Yeah. And usually there's a six month time. Now it's ten months to a year if you want to get vinyl. Back in the day it was like three months, then six months. So Yeah, because the plants were backed up and they they can't even print them on time now. Well right? the the majors came in. Well no everyone says vinyl's back. Well actually vinyl never went away. All the <laughs> indie all the indie labels were still making vinyl. Yeah. yeah. And releasing vinyl as a format. But when the majors turned around and went like, Hey, you guys are making money off this stuff? And they're like, Yeah, we are. So they said, Okay, we're gonna release all our you know, 120,000 titles and have them repressed. So they just went to the, the, the printing plants and just went, here's all our, here's a big wad of cash. We're at the front of the line now. So all the indies got pushed to the back, which is kind of a shame. Yeah, it is, it is. This record will come out on vinyl, I'll assume, right? Yeah, we've yeah. actually aligned it so that vinyl will be out pretty much, if not on the day, October 7th. Immediately, you're not going to have to wait ten months to get a piece of vinyl. There's artists out they're putting out new out records and saying, "Buy the vinyl now," but you won't get it for, for 10 a year. Months. For a year. <laughs> right. For a year. <laughs> Who wants to wait for that? And everything's so immediate in this culture too. People want things right away. Yeah, people want information. Well, they got the information, so you want whatever it is. Press a button; it's at your house. Yeah. Um, everybody wants things immediately, and that's it. Just is what it is. It is. You still love touring? No. <laughs> Do I love touring? I love performing. Yeah. I love being on stage. I suffer from t tinnitus. <clears throat> so that's that's quite a lot. At times it can be really bad. It can be really activated. So I have to be in really quiet. Well, not so much quiet. I have to have some kind of white noise. Mm. So being on the bus is good for me because it cuts out a certain frequency they've got in my head all the time. And auspiciously, of course, it comes from Billy's side of the stage. So of course. He's knocking out 120 decibels. Turn down, Billy. Yeah, turn down. Um <laughs> But Billy's a tone guy anyway. He's all about tone. Yeah. He, doesn't, he doesn't have a necessary volume. He's, he's a tone guy, so you know he gets a certain tone. But he definitely shifts some air. There's no doubt. Yeah, I remember waking up in my news feed the other day and, and saw that you actually broke up a fight in the front row in D.C. So mm. tell me, talk to me about that because that your was crazy. News feed. I, I watched it. It was like TMZ. Ian asked, I was like, "Is that oh. your news feed?" Is that <laughs> yeah. what you got with your, I was yeah, like, "Ian's on TMZ. What's going on here?" Yeah. <laughs> so. I was what? People were texting me and hitting me up, going. You're on TMZ. I'm like, what? Listen, whenever I see my friends in any kind of new, I just want to make sure they're okay. So um, I was just... Uh, it was just sheer voyeurism. Um, no, it was just another day at the office. Breaking up a fight. Another day at the office. I think there's a lot of pent-up aggression now, People, because obviously being from the, you know, coming from this time of the pandemic and people just, you know, get out there and there, there is this, people have been holed up for two years. So I think a lot of the audiences now, when I see them, they, you just, you can feel the aggression that's there, right? But you know, hopefully you don't <clears throat> encounter it too often. It manifests itself. I mean, people haven't been around each other for quite a while. And, yeah. and, you know, have a few drinks, somebody gets pushed. Exactly. The next thing, it kicks off to six people jumping in and security are picking the nose. You know, there's so many. You just get a, gr a lot of great pro-security or on top of things quickly, but sometimes you gotta you got to jump in and deal with it. They were not on top of it at that DC gig for you. No, this kid, well, this young man was in a was being choked out by another guy. Wow. And could have broken his windpipe. So I immediately jumped in just to stop that. And I wasn't, there was no, I wasn't thinking about TMZ when I was doing that. I was thinking yeah. more about the safety of this poor guy. And then sadly, the, the security through the guy was getting choked out the venue. Typical. Yeah. You know, it always happens that way. They did it. They did it. When actually the person who's saying they did it is the one that started it. And I'm just, at that point, you're exasperated. It's, yeah. what are you going to do? But I did say to the audience, I said, uh, please understand, everyone's feeling it. You're telling me you're okay right now? Really? Yeah. After two years? 
we're not okay. I'm not okay. Yeah. Um, I'm just getting it to back. We're just getting it back together again. And I'm witnessing this. Come on. Love each other a little bit more, well, right? Well, let's have a little bit more consciousness that yeah. people, you know, people are uh, are on edge right now. And I said, and with another thing, some people just go to a show to get a break. True. Just get a break. You yeah. don't know what's going on with people. You have no idea. Yeah. You have no idea. And assumptions one of the worst things we have in our culture where you assume that somebody's a certain way before you've even spoken or even heard what they've got to say. You know, you're this. Well, actually, I'm not. That's, no. You Can I give you some context? I mean, sadly, communication. Give me, you know, a new language. Yeah. Psychedelics. Well, <laughs> you met Timothy Leary, by the way, speaking of psychedelics. I met you Timothy Leary on many occasions. Yeah, what was that like? Timothy was a fixture in the scene in, in Los Angeles in the 60s, 70s, and the 80s. But for me, it was more the 80s so and the early 90s. So Timothy was around, and he was around Danny. There was this erudite group that were all, I guess, they were our elders from the 60s. I mm. mean, these guys were the engineers of the counterculture. And obviously, Timothy Leary was pretty high up as a dignitary. And um, it was part of the interview process for the Doors. It was going to a private dinner and being asked questions by Timothy Leary. And you so must have loved that. I think you probably... You I know. was just in awe <laughs> yeah. of being, first of all, being in that environment in a private yeah. you know, setting with with this group of individuals who were asking me these very pointed questions and were very really interested. Yeah. So I was... I didn't realize it was an audition. I didn't think... It felt like a dinner party, but it was kind of an audition. They were trying to work out what was going on with me, and I was just... I wasn't trying to do anything other than be authentic. So, um, yeah, don't be authentic, kids. <laughs> and again, doesn't, life came full circle because you end up performing... Well. <laughs> yeah. Well, the yeah. cult.us US is the website. Obviously, the tour kicks off again September 15th, right around the time of this mm. release of the podcast. Canada, of all places. Uh, you probably feel an affinity. You feel an affinity towards Canada, having grown up there yeah. a little bit, I my imagine. Right? Was there. My father's buried there. I grew up there five years, Hamilton, Ontario. Yeah. So going back to Canada, I'm very familiar with it. I mean, I grew up in North America. I really did. I grew up a North American kid. I mean, I remember seeing the dolls on Don Krishna's rock concert when I was a kid. Uh, you know, I mean, everything came from New York State. New York City was Mecca. Yeah. I only lived like 40 miles from the border. So we've got all the TV channels, local TV. We had local Buffalo TV from New York State. And then we had like NBC, CBS, ABC, you know, public television. It was all from the States. You know, I watched American sports. And I became obsessed with New York. My father went there in the 50s as a merchant sailor merchant navy and he was there talking about brooklyn and brawls in brooklyn and yo i'm from brooklyn how you doing you good well my dad was there you know yeah. he was there from he was a sailor from merseyside and uh, he was an officer actually an engineering officer but he was a bit of a yeah colorful fellow my father yeah i'm sure it's funny with uh, new york you almost go there to like uh, <laughs> you go to new york to unwind because we were hanging out in new york not long ago yes. so that's a place that you go to kind of decompress interesting enough right yeah new york's a decompression chamber for me yeah if that makes sense it's i have a certain because i've lived in different parts of the city but i really do have a special affinity for the you know east village west village washington square park south of 14th street you know, I mean, that is the epicenter of Cam's culture in many ways, yeah. as in the West Coast had San Francisco and Los Angeles, of course. But um, having lived there and walked those streets for many years, 
you know. Um, still has the energy, I think. I mean, yeah, I feel like. Yeah, there's a frequency in New York that's still there, and, and that's really by the people that have been there for forever. Yeah. The neighborhoods that have, haven't really changed, the immigrant neighborhoods, the, the integration of all the different cultures. There's still a, a, an incredible creative stew in New York. And it, it, it comes in waves, I believe, and we'll see what's going to come next. Hopefully everything's not going to have a QR code stuck on it. Right. Um, we talked about last time you were here about lyrically how many of your songs are inspired by New York. Yeah, of course. And uh, I'm, I don't know about the new record, but was there some New York inspiration there a little bit? Yeah, there's got to be. Because it's got to be. It has yeah. to be. Yeah. You ever see yourself living there again? Could that ever happen to you? Hmm. I mean, if it was... If I had two of me, <laughs> I'd send one to New York. But um, I feel like you really thrive there, and you really. I enjoy do. I thrive it. in New York, but that's me. I'm already thriving wherever I am. So yeah. But with all respect to Los Angeles, Los Angeles is the seat of our satiria. And with all respect to New York, New York's got something else going on. But what Los Angeles has, we have JPL. Mm. You know, we have we have the ocean, we have the mountains, we have the deserts, we have psychedelics we have a history of the you know we were close to the uh mesoamerican cultures uh you know um you can get you can fly to mexico city here from here in like two three hours yeah you can be at tiwakan uh you can be in this you know highly evolved civilizations that have been around for thousands of years not that far from here and you can feel that frequency up and down the west coast you know, so there's something about that. All the esoteric schools. Where I live, there's a Tibetan Buddhist temple around the corner from my house. There's a synagogue. There's a, you know, there's a Zen monastery down the street. There's, I think there's even Masons. There's Anglicans. There's, you know, there's, uh, there's an, one of the oldest ashrams in the United States. I think the oldest ashram is right there by the 101. Oh, yeah. And that's, the ashram's been there since the 20s. Theosophists came over, Blavatsky, they're all in Beechwood Canyon. Christopher Ishwood, not Ian Ishwood, Christopher Ishwood, who wrote I Am a Camera, lived up Beachwood. So did Aldous Huxley, who sure. wrote The Doors of Perception, yeah. which influenced The Doors, etc. Laurel Canyon, obviously. The whole Laurel Canyon scene from yeah, the Laurel years Canyon ago. scene, but, yeah. you know, these are, it's, it's kind of an existential thing, you know, memories is of what's happening right now. There's a lot of dope things happening in Los, Los Angeles. A lot of enlightened things happening. Yeah. A lot of chaos in L.A. There is. There's there chaos is. everywhere. But there's great cultural things happening here, too. I always Incredible. find New York, I love the museums. I love the... I mean, yeah. there's... there's L.A. Know. has great museums. Yeah, they do, but I, I always feel Broad, a little more... for example. The Broad's incredible. Yeah, the Broad's great. Yeah, for sure. Well, check out the new record. Obviously, I'm super... One of the best records you've ever made, and, and an incredible Thank record. Uh, definitely, I'm excited to see At The Greek, October 9th. Where are we playing, Scott? <laughs> we'll say it like 10 <laughs> times. We're playing At The Greek. At The Greek, October 9th. And there's October a, actually With a Black slew Rebel Motorcycle Club. That's true. You just announced that, I think, right? And King Woman, and Skeleton Joe. Joe Cardamone of the Icarus Line. So, the bill is stacked. The venue is beautiful. I've been there. I've seen you there before. It was yeah, great. Amazing it, show. It's a beautiful place to go and see shows and to perform because you're just surrounded by trees. Yeah. You're right in it. It's great. You know, and um, it's a beautiful venue because we're thinking about playing somewhere else and we just said, let's do the Greek again if it's available. And it just happened to be available. Amazing. So we took it. And October 7th, the record comes out, too. So there's a lot going on for you, October. I'm excited to come see yeah. you. I'm excited to hang. I'm all, it's always a pleasure. By the way, the new single, Cut Inside, comes out also next week. So there's so much going on in the world of the cult. Yeah, a lot. A too lot. Much. And make sure you check out the new record. It's incredible. I'm so happy to have you. Always an enlightening conversation. Every Thank time you. I see you, you know, I go and Google like 50,000 things. Well, I'm going to give you a lot of stuff off yeah. camera that you're going to... 
it's going to ruin your day when I share some <laughs> stuff with you. I'll just give you the top five of what I've been into recently, and, uh, but I'll do that off camera. I, I learned so much hanging out with you, and that's why I'd love to spend some time with you. So thank you so much for coming in. It's a pleasure. And everyone, go check out the new record. Check out the tour, The Cult, Ian Asbury. This is Lips LA. Well, that was awesome. Ian Asbury, The Cult. If you like the show, please make sure to tell a few friends about the show. TheCult.us is where you find The Cult. They're getting into dates actually around September 15th. As I mentioned, Vancouver all up until October 27th in Mexico. The new record is out now. Check out the singles, Give Me Mercy, A Cut Inside, Mirror, All Out. Amazing band, amazing singer. And by the way, if you like the show, please make sure you tell some friends about the show and give it a five-star review. It's very helpful to us. I am on Cameo, so check me out there. We'll be doing a lot of shows coming up, a lot of exciting shows. I appreciate you as always tuning in. Over and out. Speak to you soon. Thanks again. Hey, how'd it do, y'all? I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.